coming to you all the way from Liverpool in England, where the Super Nerds UK podcast. And you're listening to California Dreaming on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. This episode of California Dreaming is brought to you by Blueberry. Blueberry offers the best media hosting, accurate listening stats, their all-new PowerPress Deluxe sites, a no-setup WordPress website for your podcast, and it comes with all of the necessary links to share your show with the world built right in. Head over to www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream to sign up for media hosting, a PowerPress Deluxe site, get that podcast you've been dreaming about started, and get your first month for free. That's www.orbitaljigsaw.com dream. And now... On to the show. Today I'm going to talk to you about the lies we tell. I know many of us as parents really try to teach our kids to be honest. We don't want them cheating, lying, sneaking, covering up, or stealing. But then we turn around and tell lies about the tooth fairies, Santa Claus, Easter Bunny, all of that nonsense we fill their heads with. I don't think that there is anything wrong with telling kids about those things. They will eventually get old enough to get it, and they'll understand why we, as parents, made up such outrageous stories. How it was us who dragged ourselves out of bed to slip cash under our kids' pillows, or eat the cookies and drink all the milk that we left out for Santa or to toss those Easter eggs onto the yard so our kids wouldn't catch on to our little lies. But when it comes to the real lies, I was never really one to believe it's in a child's nature to lie. I worked as a preschool teacher for 10 years, and if there was ever a time that a two or three or four-year-old told me a bold-faced lie, I'd always be shocked. I don't really think children are wired to think that way. If I knew the parents, if I understood the dynamics at home, and I knew that there were other issues going on, then I could understand that maybe it was a defense mechanism to lie, to not get in trouble. The child, for some reason, had become more fearful of the consequences of the actions than they were of telling the lie. If the lie worked, and they avoided getting in trouble, then the behavior just became reinforced. Fortunately, if someone in class did something bad, and a child lied to me about it, toddlers are pretty good at being tattletales, and all I could say to the child is that I'm hurt and disappointed in the lie, more than the thing that they did wrong, that I would never lie to them, and I don't want them to lie to me either. If they're bad in class, we can work it out, but only if they tell me the truth. If they lied to me, then I'd have to talk to their parents about both the misbehaving and the lies. It sometimes got through to them. Eventually, they'd learn that they're not really going to get in serious trouble in preschool. I just wanted to get through to them that it was important to me to build trust with them. And I believe children more than I believe some adults. So whenever they'd lie to me, 
it'd be a very surprising behavior. Harsh punishments for lies, in my opinion, sets children up to become afraid of telling the truth. The truth has to be a safe place for children. As parents, caregivers, and teachers, we have to be firm on being honest, but we do have to be gentle with children. Otherwise, they won't trust us to come with us with the truth. Sometimes it takes courage to tell the truth for any of us at any age, and it doesn't always come naturally or easily for everyone to be truthful. With our kids, we try as much as we can to model honest behavior. I don't lie to my daughter, but sometimes I lie to my own mom. I've made no secret of the fact that my mother and I have a strained relationship, and I lie to her to protect myself from her harsh criticisms and belittling of me. Right or wrong, I'm likely not going to change anything about that, but those who know me and are close to me they understand. They understand that I do it to protect myself. Lying is not a great habit to get yourself into and it can cause problems. It can be damaging and it can be hurtful to others. It can damage relationships and break apart trusting bonds and it can make us all look really bad. In worst case scenarios, it can get us in trouble with employers even with the law. But luckily for us, absolutes don't always work in life. And even lying can have a place in everyday situations. I found an article that suggested three situations where lying would be okay for self-preservation, personal protection, and when someone else's feelings are at stake. It kind of goes without saying that if you're under a serious threat, any lie you can come up with that might help, offer it up. If something seems like a threat and if the best way to get out of it is to come up with a lie, then by all means, lie. I guess personal protection is sort of what I do for myself when I'm lying to my mother to protect my feelings, my emotions, my personal life, or my privacy. That sometimes it's okay to sidestep questions or avoid subjects that I don't want to talk about or reveal. No harm, no foul, right? And lastly, when it comes to someone else's feelings, I think most of us are guilty of telling a little white lie once in a while, huh? Just because we don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. Nobody has to be brutally honest if a lie would just be easier to spare someone from hearing how you really feel, especially if it really isn't going to solve anything. Now you know that this is a true crime podcast and I'm not just sitting here talking about lies all willy-nilly for no reason, right? We've all seen and heard our fair share of police interrogation videos and audio recordings. That's pretty much what I'm going to get into in today's episode. There are a number of different techniques police use in order to try and get information out of a suspect. We've seen police interrogate suspects for hours upon hours with harsh questioning, often in a threatening manner. We've seen these scenarios sometimes play out, ending up in false confessions that were aggressively coerced from a suspect. So aggressively that the person being questioned is so worn down, so tired, so scared, that they get to the point 
where they're just ready to say anything the police want to hear in order to get out of that tiny interrogation room. Watching those kinds of interrogations unfold can really make you cringe. And once a suspect puts forth a confession, the chances of mounting any kind of a solid defense is diminished. A confession trumps just about anything and everything else at a trial. We've even seen confessions convince jurors over physical and forensic evidence that is directly contradictory to the confession. For police, attorneys, prosecutors, district attorneys, and judges, people simply just don't confess to crimes that they haven't committed. But we have seen it time and time again that they sometimes do, especially if they have been completely broken down by an aggressive interrogation. I guess that false confession would be one of those lies that falls under the category of self-preservation. I tend to think that police think suspects are lying to them all the time. I suppose a good detective should be able to read a suspect really well anyway, or at least they have some information regarding the suspect and their involvement in a particular crime to already have enough information to know whether or not he or she is lying, and they can use that information to call him or her out on their lies. I've just come to the conclusion that if you're being interrogated, you just need to ask for an attorney right away. Police are not going to be looking out for your best interests, and the chances are, even if you are telling the truth, they're likely not going to believe you. And what's worse is they can tell you all the lies they want, and it's perfectly legal. So they're just going to use their tactics and their trickery to try and slip you up, guilty or not guilty. Just ask for that attorney. Before I tell you what police can do, let me tell you what they absolutely cannot do while they're questioning a suspect about a crime. In order to arrest someone, police need probable cause or a reasonable belief that a person has committed a crime. It's unnecessary to obtain a warrant before making their arrest, but police have to get a warrant when arresting a person in their home if it's for a non-serious offense and if there is no reasonable belief that that person will destroy evidence or harm the public. The warrant must establish that a crime was committed, that the person named on the warrant committed the crime, and that the warrant must be in compliance with the rules of the court. If a person is just walking down the street, police can't stop a person if they have reason to believe that he or she was involved in a crime. However, under the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution, that person is protected against self-incrimination and therefore does not have to answer any questions. But under the law, people do have to give their name if they're asked. So if being questioned about a crime, all you are obligated to give is your name. When arresting someone, police do not have to give the Miranda warnings. But if the person being arrested makes incriminating statements, in order for those statements to be used in court, the Miranda warning has to be given first. In order to use the information police gather during an interrogation at a trial, police have to give the full Miranda warning. 
And just because police question a suspect and arrest a person without giving the Miranda warnings doesn't mean the court will dismiss the case. It depends on what kinds of other evidence they have against the suspect. Even if a person agrees to talk to police during an interrogation, that person has the right to stop the line of questioning at any time, even if the right to remain silent has been waived. Once a person asserts their Miranda rights to refuse to answer questions, requesting to speak to an attorney, or request to remain silent, police must stop the interrogation immediately. Lastly, police are prohibited from using physical or psychological coercion when conducting an interrogation. Any kind of evidence or a confession that results from coercive tactics is inadmissible at trial. Police are not allowed to use any kind of torture techniques, threats, drugging, or any kind of inhumane treatment during questioning. So now that takes us to what police can do when questioning a suspect. Can police lie to you? Most of us already know the answer to this question. Yes, they absolutely can, and the courts allow it. The lies told by police to a suspect under questioning do not necessarily render the confession involuntary. Police trickery alone does not invalidate a confession. The court is the one who must look to see if the deception was likely to produce a false confession. The police can lie about having physical evidence. They can tell a suspect that they have their fingerprints or their DNA just to see what kinds of information they can get out of the suspect, even if they don't actually have that evidence. The courts have ruled that the practice of lying about having DNA or fingerprints is a frequent practice of law enforcement and it is not unconstitutional as long as that deception did not produce an untruthful confession. Police can trick you into giving up a sample of your DNA by offering you something to drink. Police are even allowed to go through your garbage to obtain your DNA and other evidence. They can give you fake tests to supposedly prove you are guilty. They can hook you up to a polygraph machine and tell you that you failed even if you didn't or you weren't even really connected to a functioning polygraph. They can give you a chemical test and tell you that you failed even if you passed. For example, a suspect may deny involvement in a crime, but then the police can show the suspect a fake graph from a fake machine and tell the suspect that they know he or she is lying. So then the suspect decides to admit to being at the scene of the crime and the courts have ruled that this kind of admission is completely voluntary and admissible. Another example is that police can pretend to test a suspect's hands by spraying them with soap and then patting them dry with a paper towel. Next, they can take a field test kit that is usually used for testing chemical substances such as cocaine, which will turn a different color when coming in contact with the soap. Then the detective can use this color change to lie and tell the suspect that their hands have tested positive for gunshot residue and that it's proof that a gun has been in their hands recently and fired. If a confession results from this ruse, it can be used against a suspect in court. Police can lie to a suspect about recording or not recording a conversation. A suspect can be told that the interrogation officer is going to turn off the recorder and that that conversation is confidential just between the officer and the suspect 
and that it is completely off the record. The police have no obligation to disclose that there are still other active cameras and other recording devices that are still turned on. When speaking with the police, there is no such thing as off the record. Police can lie about having an accomplice's confession by telling a suspect that their friend sold them out and confessed to everything. They can also imply to a suspect that their refusal to cooperate will be damaging to their case. They can say things like, we know what happened, but if you try to obstruct the investigation, the DA will be a lot tougher on you. Now granted, a person can be charged with obstruction of justice, such as lying to police, but refusing to answer questions is not obstruction of justice. Police can also lie to a suspect about what will happen to other people if they aren't told the truth about what happened. They can tell a suspect that their friend or family member will spend the rest of their life in jail unless the suspect tells police everything that happened. But they cannot threaten a family member with harm or removal from the home. While the court permits a number of coercive tactics, threatening your family is considered the type of threat that is likely to produce a false confession. In other words, a threat by police to arrest or punish a close relative or promise to free the relative in exchange for a confession may render an admission invalid. Police can and will lie to a suspect about wanting to help him or her out. They will say stuff like, we know what happened and the best thing for you to do is to tell us how to write it up in your favor and we will help you out. A good rule of thumb is to remember that police are never going to help a suspect do anything except incriminate themselves. That's their job. Police may also ignore your request for an attorney. There is an evidentiary loophole that allows voluntary statements given in violation of the Miranda ruling to be used in court for purposes of challenging the defendant's credibility. Police can strategically decide prior to the interrogation that they will continue questioning the suspect even if he were to invoke his right to an attorney. Anything the suspect would say after that could not be used to prove his or her guilt. However, anything the suspect does say is admissible as what is called impeachment evidence, which can be used to show that the defendant is testifying falsely. And finally, the last thing I wanted to talk about when it comes to what police can do, because it is a very relevant part to one aspect of the story I'm going to tell you today. And it is that police are allowed to lie to a suspect about having an eyewitness. They can tell a person that they are interrogating that an eyewitness identified them at the scene of a crime. If not for this tactic of police interrogation, Lying to a criminal suspect about having been identified by an eyewitness to the commission of a crime, none of what I'm about to tell you would have ever happened in the first place. In today's episode of California Dreaming, the tale of the little blue lie. This story was actually one that was recommended to me by a listener, and I searched and searched through all of my messages, and for the life of me, 
I could not find the message exchange that I had about this case. So if you're listening and you and I talked about this story over social media, please message me so I can thank you in the next episode. But at the same time, the listener who did have a conversation with me about this case was somewhat related to the people involved and may not want their name out there for reasons that will soon be obvious to you guys. So if this is the case, then I completely understand. Either way, you know who you are and you can message me anyway. If you don't want me to thank you publicly, I won't, but I would like to thank you privately. And I'm completely lame that I can't find our conversation and I'm sorry. So, there is a documentary out there on Netflix about the story that I was going to initially tell you, and I will get into all of that shortly. But while I was researching for information beyond the documentary, I came across a story within the story, one that was kind of glossed over by the documentarians. Granted, the secondary story wasn't meant to be a focus of the film, but it struck me as just as significant a part of this case as the subject of the documentary had been, if not more so. Something that I didn't even know the first time I watched the documentary. Incidentally, I did watch it about four times. And the fourth time, I watched it knowing what I know now after reading through other articles about the crime, just to make sure I wasn't missing something in the film. And I didn't. And because of this extra story within the story, this episode has grown to become kind of long. But I just really didn't want to break it up into two parts. I think it all needs to be told all at once. I don't know why this aspect of the story was omitted from the film. Maybe they didn't think it was necessary as it very well could have been written off as an insignificant footnote to the whole thing. But when I found out this bit of information, I was initially deeply saddened and disturbed by the revelations. But then it all just made me upset. The whole documentary was upsetting enough, but this, this just made it and the investigators involved in this whole case that much worse. I'm sorry it's taken me so long to get to the heart of this tale. The story itself is actually pretty cut and dry and straightforward. The documentary did an excellent job laying out the timeline of events that took place back in 2003. And I will lay out the whole story for you. And then I'm going to get into the lies that the documentary left out. I call them the blue lies. Because they are the lies that the police told that ultimately set in motion a sequence of events that should not and would not have ever happened if not for those lies. On Monday, May 12, 2003, at approximately 10.40 p.m. in the evening, the day after Mother's Day, 16-year-old Martha Puebla was shot outside of her Sun Valley, California home. Officers responding to the shooting arrived on the scene and discovered the victim having been shot in the face, lying on the street in front of her home. 
She was pronounced dead at the scene by Los Angeles County Fire Department paramedics. The early investigation revealed that Martha had been home at the time with her family the entire evening. But for reasons unknown to anyone at the time, went outside to talk to someone. Martha was only outside the home for a few minutes when neighbors heard a gunshot being fired. Martha's father and mother ran outside and discovered her lifeless body. There were eyewitnesses to the shooting, and they were able to provide a description of the suspect to the police. He was described as a medium-built Hispanic male, age 19 to 25, approximately 5 foot 8 to 5 foot 10. He had very short hair and a mustache and appeared to be a gang member. It wasn't too long after the shooting that police began to piece together a theory of Martha's murder. They began to theorize about who might have done this to her and what their motives might be. Enter Juan Catalan. It was his story I was initially going to tell you about when I started thinking about writing this episode. Juan Catalan is the subject of the Netflix documentary entitled Long Shot. You may have seen it. And if so, then you are familiar with the crux of his story. And if you haven't seen it, don't worry. I will walk you through it in this episode. But it is that story within this story, that part of it that the documentary didn't really get into too much. Yes, they mentioned the murder of Martha Puebla. But what they didn't do was they didn't get into the heart of why she was murdered. And I'm not talking about the supposed reasons why police accused Juan Catalan of killing her. I'm talking about the real reasons why she was killed. Which, as it would turn out, would be for no real reason at all. But first, I'm going to tell you about Juan's story. Juan was raised in a suburb north of the city of Los Angeles, in an area that had been known for street gang activity. If you're familiar with the Southern California area, then you know it's kind of a checkerboard of good and bad areas. The closer you are to the beach or the further up you are the hillsides, then you're probably doing really well. And everything in between feels different every block you travel in all directions. I like it here, and I like the diversity of everything, the cultures, the climate, the landscape, everything. I was fortunate to have been raised in a pretty good neighborhood, and I went to good schools. But you still often tend to feel connected to the areas around you. When the fires burn 30 miles away, everyone feels the effects of the devastation. Even though it may be far away, we can still see the hazy skyline and smell the burning. It overwhelms us, and the ashes cover us all. When an earthquake strikes, we all shake. We all run for cover. And no matter what neighborhood you're from, you all feel it. And even when the things you don't think can really affect you, like when Los Angeles burned during the 1992 riots, the skies turned black above all of us, and we all had a curfew. I've mostly gone through life living in this bubble of suburbia, but I'm still keenly aware of what goes on in the next neighborhood over. 
And it doesn't take a natural disaster or a civil uprising for me to be reminded of how challenging things can be just a few freeway exits away. Stories like Juan's, the ones that take place in my own backyard, these are the ones I enjoy more than anything. Hence the podcast, right? So anyway, Juan was raised with an older brother, Mario. And like a lot of young men raised in Southern California, Mario found himself hanging out with what Juan would describe as the wrong crowd, meaning gangs, and participating in street gang activity and crime. His brother would bring home stolen items, and not too long after, Juan started to follow suit. He'd hang out with some friends, and they'd break into cars, and Juan was usually the getaway driver. When Juan was finally arrested for the first time, he was intent upon making that his one and only trip to county jail. So, fast forward to August 13, 2003. Juan's girlfriend, Alma, was driving him to work a little bit before 8 in the morning to a shop where he worked as a machinist with his dad, who had already long been at the shop working, as he did every single morning, typically arriving before 6 a.m. As soon as Juan was about to step out of the car, he was immediately confronted by police who had been waiting for him in a vehicle parked nearby the machine shop. They pushed him down into the pavement, face down, and placed him in handcuffs and placed him under arrest. Juan can see his dad peering out from the door of the machine shop, but nothing could really be done in that moment. Juan was going to jail, and at that point, Nobody was certain as to why or what for. He was brought in for interrogations by two detectives, Juan Rodriguez and Martin Penner. And I really need you guys to remember these guys. You're going to want to remember them. Juan asked them what was going on. They asked Juan if he was going to be willing to talk to them about what was going on. Juan seemingly dumbfounded, asks again, what's going on? As it seems he has no clue as to why he's been brought in for questioning by these detectives. They soon informed him that he was under arrest for the murder of Martha Puebla. As Juan described in the documentary, he sat there in stunned silence for what seemed like no less than five minutes. Martha, it seems, had previously testified in a separate case in which Juan's brother Mario was a co-defendant. Mario himself, as it were, or one of two men charged with murder as well. I'm going to stop Juan's story here for a second and give you a bit of background on the murder charges his brother had been facing. On December 4, 2002, the Los Angeles Times reported that two San Fernando Valley gang members had been charged in connection with two killings, four days apart, in November of 2002. The two victims were allegedly shot while seated in their vehicles. Mario, 25 at the time, and another man named Jose Ledesma, who was 19 years old at the time, were charged with murder, attempted murder, and shooting at an occupied vehicle. Jose Ledesma was also being charged with the second murder four days after the first one. He was being held without bail 
and was facing the possibility of the death penalty with the special circumstances of committing multiple murders. Mario Catalan's bail was set at $1.25 million. According to police, the first killing took place on the afternoon of November 23rd when three men who were driving a Ford Mustang, including Ledesma and Catalan, allegedly fired seven shots into an SUV on Lancashire Boulevard in North Hollywood. The shooting was described as a gang-related incident, and after the shots were fired, according to witnesses, one of the men in the Mustang asked the driver of the SUV where he was from. It is unknown what, if anything, the driver said, but he ended up dying as a result of his gunshot wounds. The second killing took place on the early morning hours of November 27th, when a lone gunman, wearing a hoodie, who police say was Ledesma, approached and shot Christian Vargas, age 18, as he was waiting outside for his girlfriend. The case against Ledesma and Catalan came together pretty quickly for detectives as a result of some important breaks in the case and eyewitness information identifying the license plate on the Mustang. Ballistics testing also matched the shell casings at both crime scenes, determining that they both came from the same 9mm semi-automatic handgun. The suspects were actually apprehended a couple days later, just south of the border in Mexico. When authorities at the border responded to an incident of domestic violence involving Catalan and his girlfriend, she then told police that it was her boyfriend and Ledesma who were involved in the Lancashire Boulevard killings. Authorities also said that they recovered about $3,200 in cash from Catalan when he was taken into custody. It was suspected that he was planning on using the money to bribe Mexican jailers to protect him from authorities in the United States seeking to extradite him on the murder charges. The killing on the 27th of November marked the 24th killing in the North Hollywood area that year, with the majority of the killings having been gang-related. That was an increase of 17 killings in North Hollywood that had been reported at the same time the previous year. So, circling back to Juan Catalan, he was at that point in August of 2003 being accused of killing Martha, who had testified in some pretrial hearings in relation to the murder case against Juan's brother. When Mario was arrested, Juan and Alma attended that preliminary hearing, and in doing so, they had provided their identification to the court. As they sat there through Juan's brother's hearing, they remember seeing Martha there that day in court. She was there to testify to being a witness to one of the killings. They wanted her to identify the shooter in court, but she could not or would not point out anyone as the shooter that day. She stated to the court that she didn't see anything. And after that, Juan stated that he never thought any more about that testimony or Martha. And Juan vehemently denied any involvement in killing her. But those detectives, they were 100% certain that they had the right guy in custody. They were more than 100% certain that they were sitting across the interrogation table from the man who shot Martha point blank in the face as she stood on the sidewalk in front of her house. But Juan stood his ground and repeatedly told detectives he did not kill anybody. 
that he would never do anything to hurt anybody in that way. The detectives pushed hard, insisting Juan convince them that he didn't do it. But his denials were falling on deaf ears. Whatever evidence the detectives had that brought them to arrest Juan, they had already had him tried and convicted as far as they were concerned. What's more, Juan seemingly matched a composite drawing put together by an eyewitness to the shooting. And if you were to have a look at it, indeed it does resemble Juan, right down to the struggling mustache and short hair. But he didn't have that small patch of hair on his chin just below his lip. It was depicted in the composite, and he didn't have that. And when he pointed that out to the detective, that he didn't have that patch of hair, they accused him of shaving it off. Juan then remarked that if he were to shave off the patch of hair, why wouldn't he just shave off his whole mustache to alter his appearance? And the detective said to that that they didn't know. Maybe he thinks he's just a cool guy. Or maybe he thinks that there were no eyewitnesses. But there were witnesses, and they say it was Juan that did this. He also matched the physical description, being between 5'7 and 5'11, between the ages of 19 and 25. Juan could easily see that he wasn't innocent until proven guilty. He was guilty, and he was going to have to somehow prove his innocence. He made the wise decision to lawyer up quickly. And fortunately, he knew a guy too. Juan had a cousin who worked as a filing clerk for a criminal defense attorney. His cousin would always talk about what a good attorney this guy was. And that was a guy I wanted to get in touch with as soon as possible. His name was Todd Melnick. And at the time that he heard from Juan, he had about 10 years of being a criminal defense attorney under his belt. He talked to Juan at the county jail. He needed to get the facts of this case, and he needed to determine if he was going to want to take on Juan's case or not. And if the guy was telling him the truth about the killing, and that he is innocent, and he is being wrongly accused, Todd wanted to make that determination. He asked Juan if they mentioned the death penalty, and Juan said, yeah, they did bring up the possibility of the death penalty. The detectives had also shown Juan what is known in police terms as a six-pack, an array of six mugshots, and one of them was Juan's picture, and it was circled with the signature and the date, June 30th, 2003, and the words written below his photo, quote, this is the guy who I saw shot my neighbor, unquote. Detectives are telling Juan that that's him, He's the guy in the composite sketch. People saw it. They're pointing their fingers at him and that he did this and that the detectives told Juan, pictures don't lie. Now you listening out there, remember this because this is going to be really important later on. Todd found out that according to eyewitnesses and police reports that Martha had left her home to come outside to talk to a couple of other people at approximately 10 p.m. that night. As this small group of three to four people were standing in front of their house, 
They saw a Chevy Malibu drive around the block very slowly a couple of times. Of course, it was looking suspicious to them. The man who was driving the car got out and walked up to Martha. He said, who are you? And Martha answered, you know me, it's me, Martha. And the man said to her, no, you don't. And then he proceeded to take the gun from his sweatshirt and shot her in the face, right under her left eye. One of the eyewitnesses to the shooting dropped his cell phone and fled the scene. When he was tracked down, he was brought in for questioning, and this is when he proceeded to look through the thousands of photos and help put together a composite of what he recalled the shooter to look like. Todd, in talking to Juan, had this overwhelming gut feeling that Juan did not commit this murder. I don't know how much that really means. I'm sure this attorney has dealt with his fair share of criminal defendants. But this kind of a crime struck him as something completely out of character for Juan. And this was his immediate impression. And so, after their meeting, Todd told Juan that he was going to get him out of there. With eyewitnesses swearing up and down that it was Juan who shot and killed Martha, Todd figured that the best way to start is establishing a solid alibi. Eyewitness identification and the fact that Juan had been in court previously at the same time as the victim, who was apparently going to testify as a witness in that murder trial, seemed to be good enough for police to place him in custody on the charges and that it was looking like a good possibility that Juan could very well be convicted of this crime, and worse, even end up on death row. Todd needed that alibi. He asked Juan if he could remember where he was that night, shortly before 10 p.m. on May 12, 2003. Juan and Alma racked their brains, thinking back now five months earlier, where the heck were they that night? It suddenly dawned on Alma that that was the day after Mother's Day. Juan was at a baseball game that Monday night following Mother's Day. He had purchased the tickets for her, kind of assuming that she probably wouldn't go and then he would just be able to go himself. He kind of chuckles about it in the documentary, saying he got those tickets trying to pull it off as a Mother's Day gift, knowing that he'd actually turn it into a gift for himself. His attorney was like, okay, great. We just need to prove that you were at the Dodger game. Case tossed, easy peasy, right? Well, not so much. Juan actually hadn't planned on going to the game, really. He didn't have any plans, and he didn't have anyone to take. So when he decided to go, he chose to take his six-year-old daughter. She was kind of young to be able to get too into the game itself, but according to Juan, she was excited to go to these things regardless. He also took along two friends. One of them was his cousin, as he had four tickets to the game. So they went. Just another Dodger game. No big deal. So, the prosecutor in the case, a woman by the name of Beth Silverman, stated that the eyewitnesses' account to her were very credible and that the composite the eyewitness provided 
was eerily similar to one in every aspect. And this prosecutor, at this point in her career, had never lost a murder case, ever. She's also been known for going hard for the death penalty when applicable. She reiterated that the facts, even though that they're circumstantial, point to Juan as the killer. And the motive? She believes Martha was killed because she had testified and was going to testify in a murder case against Juan's brother. And that the day that she testified, which was May 1st, 2003, 12 days before she was gunned down, Juan was indeed present in the courtroom during his brother's preliminary hearing. He heard and he saw Martha take the stand to testify. What's more is she believes Juan does not have any kind of legitimate alibi placing him anywhere else but right there at the scene of the crime where eyewitnesses placed him too. Not only that, when Juan was picked up that morning outside the machine shop where he was employed, he was asked during questioning where he was the night of the murder, and he couldn't remember. He didn't remember until he had a chance to talk it over with Alma, and then it finally clicked with him that he was at that game that day after Mother's Day. That's something that the prosecutor felt like he should have easily been able to bring up. Todd got in touch with Alma and told her, you have got to find those Dodger tickets. She literally turned her apartment upside down looking for those tickets. Fortunately, she was able to find them tucked away in a Dodger envelope. The next step after finding the tickets was Juan's attorney got in touch with the senior vice president for the Dodgers, a gentleman by the name of Sam Fernandez. Todd wanted to go to the stadium and take pictures of the seats. Juan and his daughter and his friends were in, so he had an idea of exactly where they were seated that night of the game. There were almost 28,000 people sitting in that stadium that night, and Todd was tasked to prove that Juan was among them, not out shooting Martha Puebla to death. What Todd was actually trying to do was possibly identify people sitting around Juan who could possibly testify that Juan was there and that they saw him there. The tickets Juan actually got were season tickets. So he started trying to contact other season ticket holders. But nobody was really confident enough to be able to testify for certain that they saw Juan there. Which is understandable. I mean, it's so crowded and you're basically looking at the back of people's heads. And it was months ago already. Todd also found out that the Dodgers have their own in-house video recording system that films within the stadium, and those are the camera images that are shown on the big screen during the game. It's called Dodger Vision, and they had all of that footage stored on tapes too. So knowing where Juan and his daughter were sitting, Todd went through hours and hours of tape looking to see if he could find them in the sea of faces and the reason it took so long to look through each tape of a three-hour game was because he was scanning the video in slow motion just to make sure that he didn't miss a moment when the cameras panned over towards Juan's seats. He needed to spot him in the crowd. And he actually was able to see Juan and his daughter sitting in those seats. Unfortunately, the images were way too grainy to hold up in court. At a pretrial hearing, 
Juan's daughter took the stand to answer questions about her dad, who was sitting across the room at the defense table. If you've watched the documentary, you can see Juan visibly distressed, seeing his little girl get up there and try to tell the court in only the ways a six-year-old could articulate that her dad took her to that baseball game. You can see Todd questioning her. He asked her if she knew what a lie was, and she said yes. He asked her if she promised to tell the truth about what she remembers, and she said yes. He asked her if her dad took her to a Dodger game, and she said yes. He asked her if her dad bought her anything at the game, and she said yes. It really tugs at your heartstrings to watch these kinds of moments in a courtroom. Seeing that little girl testify for her dad, and to see her dad across the room breaking down into tears, it's a very powerful moment. While sitting in county jail, waiting for these pretrial hearings, and the very real possibility that he was going to be tried and possibly convicted and possibly placed on death row for a killing he is adamant that he did not commit. I can only imagine how much thinking is going on in your mind. You're thinking about being in prison for the rest of your life. He's thinking about how long and hard it is to win an exoneration after a conviction. People being in prison for 20 or 30 years, finally being released when they're finally able to prove their innocence. And it one day suddenly dawned on him. Something was being filmed that day at the game. He had been to plenty of Dodger games before then, and he had never seen anything such as what was going on that day. He saw camera crews and security personnel blocking aisles to keep people from going up and down the stairs for a few moments while they were filming in a particular spot. And he saw this man walking up and down the stairs for a variety of takes. So Todd went back to Dodger Stadium and talked to Sam Fernandez again. And they, together, walked over to the offices of Media Relations and he asked about the 12th of May. He needed to know what exactly it was that they had on the agenda that day. Who was filming? The media relations representative pulled out her calendar and flipped all the way back to May. And as she was flipping, Todd could see all of these blank pages flying by. But when she finally found her way to the 12th of May, there was an entry. It was the name of a production company. Todd was not sure what or who that was, but there was a phone number listed. So Todd called the number, and what do you know? It was HBO. Producer Tim Gibbons answered the call. Todd explained to him what his dilemma was, and Tim was like, okay... This guy's crazy. There are thousands of people here. What made him think that his guy was on film? And besides, 
they don't release pre-production footage until after the segment airs, so you're out of luck anyway. But Todd was insistent. He needed to place his client in Dodger Stadium and implored the producer for his help in letting him view this footage. So, the producer contacted Larry David, the creator and star of the show that happened to be filming there that day at Dodger Stadium, a show called Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is a comedy series on HBO. In it, Larry David stars as a fictionalized version of himself, and it follows him in his day-to-day life as a semi-retired television writer and producer. So Todd wasn't exactly familiar with who Larry David was, that he was kind of a big star, having been the co-creator of Seinfeld. Lucky for Todd, Larry was willing to make arrangements to visit with him the next day so they could look at the footage from Dodger Stadium the day that Juan said he was at the game, the day that Martha was shot dead. Larry was perfectly okay with giving him access to the film. The episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm was the seventh episode of season four and was entitled The Carpool Lane. The whole premise of the episode is Larry's character was going to try to get to a Dodger game, but he was stuck in traffic, so he decided that the only way he was going to make it to the game on time was if he picked up a passenger and took the carpool lane the rest of the way to the stadium. So he managed to pick up a prostitute and took her to the game with him. Larry was the only one who wanted to shoot the scene at a real Dodger game. And because the team considers itself a huge part of the Los Angeles entertainment industry, they were more than happy to cooperate with the filming. Once the logistics of it were worked out, and they decided in what section of the stadium they were going to be in, it was all a matter of getting those scenes filmed. The filming crew had some long-range cameras, and they really weren't trying to make a big production out of the thing because they did not want to disrupt the game for those who were paid ticket holders. In order to get some of the shots that they wanted, they needed to have security stop people from getting to and from their seats in case they didn't want to be on camera but they did try to move the scenes along as quickly as possible so they weren't keeping fans from getting to where they wanted to be for too long. So Todd, who was looking through these tapes at the studio, one by one, watching this raw footage of Curb Your Enthusiasm, a total of eight tapes he had to scour, hoping to spot his client. At least these were much better video quality than the Dodger camera footage he had been previously looking through He just needed to find his client. As Juan tells it, sometime about midway through the game, his daughter wanted something to drink or something to eat, or perhaps that ice cream she had talked about when she testified in court on behalf of her dad. So the two of them got up and headed up to the concession stand. And it just so happened to be in this time that Juan and his daughter were out of their seats, that they were filming Larry David walking down that very same aisle, that very same stairway that Juan had just went a few minutes earlier to get that something for his daughter. And when he got back to the aisle to sit back down in his seat, he noticed the camera crews at the top of the stairway. 
So Juan took his daughter by the hand and tried to navigate his way around the cameras that were obstructing the aisle, but he was stopped. Because this particular part of filming of the show, they weren't letting anyone pass by to get down the stairs. But the person who stopped at him looked at him and looked at his daughter and told him, you know, just go ahead and get to your seats. Everyone there is a paying customer, so they weren't really trying to inconvenience people too much, understandably. If you've watched this documentary, you can see that moment when Juan and his daughter cross into the camera shot when they are trying to film Larry David ascending those stairs. For some reason, Juan and his daughter were the only ones who obstruct this very shot of Larry. The assistant in charge of holding people back from obstructing this scene admittedly said that he was probably doing a bad job of it in that moment. That oh-so-pivotal moment of Juan's life. And there he was, exactly where he said he was, at this Dodger game with his daughter. And there it was, as clear as day, on Curb Your Enthusiasm. It's a moment that kind of gives you chills. You feel so good about Juan's case right now, right? Well, not so fast. This alibi was going to have to come down to the time frame. When this video was shot, when was Martha shot? As it would turn out, the raw footage had some time of day codes embedded in it. So they knew when these videos placed one at Dodger Stadium, and that would be until at least 9.15 p.m. that night. That was the last frame with him and his daughter seen on the video in their seats. Juan's attorney, for that moment, felt like this was a rock-solid, airtight alibi. This was it. Except, Martha was killed at 10.32 p.m. And, unfortunately, according to Juan's own statement, he was dropping off his cousin at his house at 10.43 that night, and his cousin just so happened to live on the same exact street as Martha, a distance of approximately a football field away from the murder scene. So, to the prosecutor, this HBO tape was worthless, as according to her, Juan had enough time to get out of Dodger Stadium, drop off his cousin, having his daughter with him, I suppose, and still make it over to Martha's house to take her out along the way somewhere? Okay, it seems like kind of a tight time frame, but whatever. So Juan's attorney was then tasked with trying to place Juan at Dodger Stadium longer than the time he was last seen on Curb Your Enthusiasm. Juan hadn't used a credit card that night, but he did use his cell phone. They pulled up the cell phone records and took a look at the towers that were pinging Juan's phone. At 10.11 that night, Alma had called Juan's phone, asking him if the game was over during that phone call, and he told her that they were walking out of the stadium at that time. And when Todd subpoenaed the cell tower records, a phone call pinged a tower that was right across the street from Dodger Stadium, and the radius of that tower was one mile. 
So he was able to prove that Juan was still in the vicinity of Dodger Stadium until at least 10.12 p.m. that night. Throughout these preliminary hearings, the judge was taking all of this in. I kind of got the sense that she knew there was something different about this case. That maybe this might not be the slam dunk the prosecution was making it out to be. Ultimately, it was going to be up to her to decide whether or not she was going to send Juan's case to trial, as he was facing the possibility of the death penalty. In her interview in the documentary, you can see and feel that the weight of the world seemed upon her when she discussed the way she deliberated over this case against Juan. She listened to the interrogation tapes repeatedly. She took them home, and she listened with her family. It really seemed that she was feeling there was an intimation of truth to what Juan was saying to the detectives when he was being interrogated. She listened to Juan tell the detectives, You guys are making the biggest mistake in the world. And they said back to him, This night, you made the biggest mistake of your life. Juan answered back, No, no. You guys are going to remember this because you guys are trying to pin somebody that had nothing to do with this. The judge listened and listened again and again, wondering if she was listening to the words of a guilty man. And you know, it's one of those moments when you hope that every judge is really, truly taking to heart what they're listening to when hearing somebody's pleas of innocence. When Juan's hearing came for the ruling as to whether he would be facing the charge of capital murder for the shooting death of Martha Puebla, he was brought into court. Her family was sitting there in the gallery looking on. Todd made his last stand for his client. He reminded the judge that Juan had those Dodger tickets. He was in that stadium. He was on that HBO footage. His phone pinged his location. And with that, it simply wasn't him. The prosecutor continued to push the eyewitness identification of Juan being the shooter. She reiterated how the composite drawing that looked so much like him. The witness being as credible as any with no reason or motive to lie, acknowledging that she knew her case against Juan was a one eyewitness case, but to her, that was enough to see Juan Catalan to death row. But the judge wasn't having it. After going on about the eyewitness being an eyewitness to something on a darkened street under stressful circumstances, that just wasn't going to be enough and she proceeded to toss Juan's murder case out. After five months, he was finally free to go home and be with his family. In March of 2007, the city of Los Angeles agreed to pay Juan a settlement of $320,000 for having spent almost five months in jail for a crime he did not commit. But this, my dear listeners, is not where this story ends. 
This is where we circle back to those lies. The lies that police tell. The lies that police are allowed to tell. And what exactly those lies can cost. This documentary really wrapped things up in a nice little package, puts a bow on it, and tucks it away, nice and neat. And it is truly an uplifting tale. I like one story. I love it, actually. Everything worked out so perfectly in the end, you know? But there is a footnote to all of this. One that shouldn't even be a footnote because it's so infuriating. And I'm somewhat surprised that it wasn't mentioned in more depth in the documentary. It is a story that involves the lies that I talked about at great length at the beginning of this episode. The lies that the men and women in blue can and do tell. Those lies sometimes can have consequences. Consequences that should have never been a thing to have happened. Lies. Seemingly innocuous lies at the time they are told that would turn out to be anything but. Let me tell you about Martha's story. As you know by now, Martha Puebla is dead. She was killed by a single gunshot to the face, right under her eye, from point-blank range. But why did Martha die? That's a question Maybe on the surface, it seems to have been answered in the documentary. That she was killed because she was a snitch. Maybe. But there's a bigger reason why she was gunned down. And there was more to it than her simply being a snitch. Way back before Juan Catalan was ever arrested for her murder, another suspect was being questioned about an unrelated murder, a suspect by the name of Jose Ledesma. He was being questioned about a murder by the very same detectives who had interrogated Juan, Detective Juan Rodriguez and Detective Martin Pinner. I told you to remember those two. They weren't just the detectives who screwed up Juan Catalan's case. They had even a bigger screw-up prior to that if you can believe that. They were questioning Ledesma about a murder when Ledesma insisted that they had the wrong guy. Pinner said to him, Okay, I don't agree with you, and I have the evidence to prove it. I have multiple witnesses who are going to testify that you are the shooter. Pinner then proceeded to tell Ledesma that he knew he was on his way to Martha's house to visit her that night. The victim was killed outside her house. And, in an effort to push forward his so-called evidence against Ledesma, Detective Pinner put down a six-pack of mugshots, one of which was a mugshot of Ledesma himself. It was his photo that was circled with the initials MP and the words written, This is the guy that shot my friend's boyfriend, were also written along the margin, followed by Martha's signature. Ledesma countered that he didn't even know a Martha, but that was a lie. He did know who Martha was. He knew exactly who she was. Detective Penner kept trying. He kept pressuring Ledesma with Martha's identification of him, telling him that he had the information from her 
that he was, in fact, the killer. But Ledesma kept insisting that he didn't know Martha, and if he could see a picture of her, maybe he'd recognize her, but it really wasn't working for the detective. He kept saying that he had no idea who she was. The detective stated back at him, Well, she knows you. Okay, so listeners, guess what? All of that was a lie. Yes, the suspect was lying to police. But the police were lying as well. Remember we talked about this early in the episode? They can lie to suspects when they're interrogating them, right? And it's perfectly legal. But none of what Detective Pinner was telling Ledesma was true. Martha hadn't helped them. The six-pack of mugshots was fake. Police forged Martha Puebla's statement and her signature to create the impression on Ledesma that she had helped them and identified him as the shooter. All of this legal. And so let me pose this question to you listening. What do you think the implications were going to be for Martha now that the police have outed her for being a snitch? It's my understanding that gangs don't take too well to snitches or rats. As I stated, Ledesma did know Martha, and now he thinks she's ratting him out, and he was going to have it dealt with. This sounds really terrible, doesn't it? It should, because it is. The next night, Ledesma reached for a payphone outside his cell and called a fellow gang member, Javier Covarrubias and asked him to kill Martha. He said into the receiver, Coaxter, referring to Covarubius by his street name. Do you know that slut that lives there by my house? Her name starts with an M. I need her to disappear. She's dropping dimes. Using a blend of Spanish and English, Ledesma told him, Uh-huh, like that but keep a low pro. Stay on your toes, homie, and don't get caught. It's pretty clear in the transcript of the phone call what it is exactly Ledesma is asking of Covarrubias. And this call, like all outgoing calls from the jail, was recorded. And detectives could have listened to it at any time, right? As a matter of fact, it's my understanding that this is a call that should have drawn attention immediately right away, it seems. We hear stories about calls being made in order to solicit hits on people from jail enough to know that it's usually impossible to get away with, right? You'd think. The jailhouse phone recording was apparently badly transcribed twice by an outside company used by the LAPD. And apparently, the contents of this call remain unknown until January of 2005, more than a year and a half after Martha's shooting death. It was only uncovered during preparations for Ledesma's trial for the murder he was told that she had identified him in as having committed. Spanish-speaking LAPD officers finally had a listen and discovered these orders to have Martha killed. Let's review now, shall we? So Detectives Pinner and Rodriguez told the suspected killer and known gang member, 
that Martha Pueblo was an eyewitness in the murder case against him. They showed him a six-pack of mug shots that included his photo, that his photo was circled and signed by Martha. Ledesma turned around and sent out orders via recorded jailhouse phone calls to have Martha killed. Nobody ever listened to the tapes of him making that call. And they apparently didn't tell Martha or her family that they had done this? I'm not sure about that last part. I am going to get into that. What, if any, she or her family knew? Anything about the police naming her as a witness to Ledesma's committing a murder? Martha's parents claimed that no one from the LAPD ever warned their daughter that she might be in danger. A detailed log the detectives kept of their investigation does not seem to reflect that they ever contacted Martha or her parents to let them know that they had used her and her name to bait Ledesma into a confession during their interrogation of him. These two detectives set in motion the chain of events that led to Martha's death. As it would turn out, they were the same two who arrested Juan Catalan for her killing, too. They, once again, told the big lies to him about the evidence against him. And, once again, things did not turn out right for the detectives, either. Their first screw-up was calling out Martha by name in that interrogation, and their next big screw-up would be arresting the wrong man for that very murder. I mean, you know and I know, we've seen cops make mistakes. But come on, these are kind of a big deal. And honestly, I find it quite upsetting that all of this came about because of lies police are legally allowed to tell. It feels yucky, and it gives me a bad feeling in the pit of my stomach when I think about it. And this is where Juan's story actually began. They had arrested him for Martha's murder based on false information from informants and sources and that they were intent on pinning her murder on Juan. The day the detectives arrested Juan, they were certain they had the right guy. They brought him into that very same North Hollywood station where they had interrogated Ledesma some nine months earlier when they told him Martha had fingered him as the killer. They questioned Juan, recorded the whole thing. He implored with the detectives to believe him that they had the wrong guy. He even begged for a lie detector test. But Penner and Rodriguez went into their interrogation of Juan just as recklessly as they did with Ledesma. They went into it with blinders on. They had their sights focused on Juan, and they too pulled their six-pack of mug shots in front of him. They had Juan's picture circled. They told him witnesses identified him as the shooter and their statements and signatures were right next to his circled picture. And guess what? Another big police lie. This was all a lie, too. Just like they did to Ledesma, they did it to Juan. It was all fake in an effort to pressure Juan into a confession, or at least to say something, anything incriminating. The detectives ironically told Juan, You see? The pictures don't lie. No, but police lie, and they did. Fortunately, things worked out in the end for Juan. But Martha was not so lucky. Those lies led to her death. But how responsible are the detectives for that? I will try to answer that question in a bit. 
When Martha was shot outside her home that spring evening in 2003, she was out there talking with her friends when she was approached by a man demanding of her to know who she was. She answered, I'm Martha, you know me. And that's when he pulled out his 9mm handgun and fired that fatal shot so close to her face that it left soot and burn marks on her cheek. Her mom and dad rushed outside, and her mother was heard screaming in Spanish, My God, she's dead. Police arrived, roped off the area with yellow crime scene tape, marked evidence, and took pictures while Martha laid there on her back in the street, legs splayed, her eyes still wide open. When detectives at the scene learned who the victim was, they called Detective Pinner at home. He and Rodriguez had been to that very corner months earlier to investigate another murder, and that's when they met Martha Puebla. The events that led to Martha's death began with those killings five months earlier, with one of those November 2002 murders I had spoken about much earlier that involved Ledesma and Juan Catalan's brother Mario. Around two in the morning, on November 27, 2002, a girlfriend of Martha's pulled up outside her house. She had arrived with another friend named Christian Vargas. He stayed in the car while she went up to Martha's ground floor window and asked if she wanted to come hang out. As the two girls talked, gunshots suddenly rang out. Martha's friend jumped through the open window and hid in Martha's room. A few minutes later, she slowly approached the car where she found Christian Vargas riddled with bullets. He managed to ask for help, but suddenly slumped over the steering wheel and died. The investigation led detectives to Jose Ledesma, who was a member of the Vinland Boys, a notoriously violent street gang that controlled much of the drug sales in the Sun Valley area of Southern California. Detectives searched his home and found a loaded assault rifle under his mattress along with letters from other Vinland boys, most of them from prison. Ledesma himself wasn't home. Upon hearing that police had searched his home, Ledesma and Mario Catalan crossed the U.S.-Mexico border and checked into a motel in Tijuana. This is when authorities were alerted to a domestic violence call that led to their arrest at the border when Mario's girlfriend told the authorities that they were wanted for murder in Los Angeles. And this is what led to that interrogation where they told Ledesma that Martha had ID'd him. They didn't get any kind of incriminating evidence from him with that lie, but they did end up getting some information when they placed Ledesma and Catalan in a holding cell while secretly recording their conversations, which did help their case against them somewhat. And as these detectives were working their case against him, the Vinland boys were scheming to do away with Martha. That man Ledesma had called from jail, that call that nobody ever heard until it was too late, that guy had been persuaded to carry out Martha's killing. He recruited others to help. They even went to a firing range to test the gun they wanted to use. Oh, it makes me so angry that the truth was in that jailhouse phone call and they hadn't heard it. They did not hear the hit get put out on Martha. 
and I'm having a hard time getting over that. Martha, it seems, never really snitched on anybody at any time. She did not tell detectives anything much at all. What's more, the truth is she actually tried to protect Ledesma following the shooting of Christian Vargas outside her house that night. Not that that was the right thing to do, but she needed to protect herself as well. She knew what it meant to be a snitch. She allegedly told her girlfriend to not cooperate with the police either. And if she did, that she herself would tell the Vinland boys where she and her family lived. To detectives, Martha denied knowing anything about who did the shooting. Although, it seems she did in fact know that it was Ledesma. But she wasn't telling anyone. When they talked to him in that interrogation room about the murder, they actually had no real good information to go on, so they lied. They threw Martha under the bus. Later, the detectives would defend their use of this ruse, stating it was indeed a legal move, and the courts throughout the United States have repeatedly upheld the right of police officers to lie to people they have in custody. But at the same time, these detectives have to use common sense, especially when naming names of supposed eyewitnesses. And for all of this to have been lies in the first place, it makes Martha's case a really tough pill to swallow. It's also standard procedure to inform a person when they might be in danger because of their involvement in a case and to also offer them protection. It isn't really clear to me if detectives told Martha or not. I would be guessing when I say that I don't think they did because it was a lie that they had made up and maybe they didn't think it would go past that interrogation room. It appears that Martha knew that she might be in some kind of danger because she allegedly told a friend that the Vinland boys think that she cooperated with police and might come after her. But that's largely conjecture. I don't know how much danger Martha knew she was in or not. Her parents claim that they were never warned or offered protection, but a federal prosecutor involved in the case stated that he recalled seeing notes from a meeting at which officials from the Los Angeles County District Attorney's Office had offered protection to Martha and that Martha and her family refused the offer. Eleven days before she was killed, Martha testified at a preliminary hearing in Ledesma's murder trial, but she was largely unhelpful and reluctant, and she had repeatedly told detectives Pinner and Rodriguez that she had not seen the shooter. She told them that she hadn't seen much of anything. Her testimony didn't stop Ledesma from wanting her dead. Either that, or it was too late, that everything was already set in motion. I don't know. In 2004, federal investigators became involved in the investigation into Martha's murder as a part of their larger investigation into the Vinland Boys' gang activity. So with the involvement of the federal authorities, Detectives Pinner and Rodriguez were pushed aside as lead investigators on any aspect of this case. Thank goodness, right? 
They were soon separated as partners, too. Detective Rodriguez was transferred from homicide to auto theft detail and is currently assigned to a vice unit, which is a unit of the police force designed to putting a stop to crimes such as illegal gambling, narcotics, and prostitution. Detective Pinner remained a homicide detective, though, in the North Hollywood Division. The federal government's investigation into the Vinland Boys gang ended in 2007 with the prosecution of two of its members who pleaded guilty to drug trafficking and murdering a witness, Jose Ledesma and Javier Covarrubias. They had been facing multiple charges that could have landed them on death row, so they took a plea deal and were sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. A third defendant, Raul Robledo, was also charged with Martha's murder and racketeering. He also pleaded guilty, but the terms of his plea were sealed. These convictions marked the end of a racketeering case against the gang that had been terrorizing Burbank, North Hollywood, and Palmdale for more than a decade. They trafficked cocaine, methamphetamines, and marijuana in Los Angeles, Hawaii, Indiana, as well as along the East Coast. They had been linked to at least four homicides, including the killing of rookie Burbank police officer Matthew Pavelka in November of 2003. When all was said and done, 49 defendants were indicted under the Federal Racketeering Influenced and Corruption Organization Act, also known as the RICO Act. In 2010, a federal jury found that Detectives Pinner and Rodriguez were negligent and violated Martha Puebla's constitutional rights when they falsely told Ledesma, a known gang member, that she had implicated him in a murder, leading to Ledesma to arrange for her to be killed. The jurors found that the detectives acted maliciously and recklessly, but they also determined that Martha and her parents were at fault also. An attorney for the city argued during the three-week trial that Martha and her family were advised by a prosecutor of the danger that she faced and offered a witness relocation program, but they turned it down. The family's attorney contended that the family was not offered any protection or relocation, claiming that she was murdered because the LAPD put a bullseye on her back by telling a gang member that she was a snitch. However, the deputy city attorney saw things differently, stating that it was Martha's testimony at the preliminary hearing, not the detective's interrogation that led to her murder, that even though she didn't identify Ledesma as the killer, she testified to other information, such as his affiliation with the gang, that could have just as easily led to the retaliation against her. The eight-member panel awarded no money to Martha's family. The jurors determined they were 80% at fault and the detectives were 20% at fault. U.S. District Judge Christina Snyder followed that up by awarding $1 in damages to Martha's family for the constitutional violations. Now this ruling kind of has me scratching my head. I mean, okay, so the detectives were negligent, 
they were reckless. They maliciously violated Martha's constitutional rights, and her life was lost, and all that amounted to for her family was one dollar. I understand that she and her family declined the offer to be placed in the Witness Protection Relocation Program, but I can't shake this feeling that the offer was turned down because Martha didn't think she provided any kinds of information or testimony that implicated Ledesma or anyone in the gang. By all accounts, she was a reluctant witness with little or no information to offer. So maybe she had the sense she was safe because she didn't snitch. But those detectives used her name. They told Ledesma that she did identify him when she hadn't. And then Ledesma had her killed. I can't get past that. I can't shake this awful feeling that I have about what those detectives said and did to set off that chain reaction culminating in Martha's death. I think this is hitting me particularly hard because I had started off wanting to tell this story to you from the perspective of Juan Catalan and his documentary. I had this really good feeling about the end of his saga. He wasn't wrongly convicted. He had this kick-ass attorney that fought and fought and fought for him. He had people he didn't even know standing up for him, cheering him on, including Dodger executives, HBO production people, Larry David, celebrities all on his side doing what they could to help him win his case. The judge, his judge, being fair and wholeheartedly ruminating over the case. Seeing Juan's daughter take the stand and fight for her dad too. And seeing him win his freedom back, win his settlement, and to be able to go on with his life. Having only lost five months, when it could have been so much worse. It was a feel-good ending, this documentary. I thoroughly enjoyed watching it. But once I started looking deeper into this case, the bigger case, beyond ones, we knew the detectives investigating him messed up big time. But it hadn't occurred to me just how much more they messed this case up until I stepped back and looked at Martha, her case, her murder, and the lies. Those lies give me chills. It makes me wonder how many times something like this has happened. When a detective throws an unwitting person under the bus by using them to pressure suspects, potentially dangerous suspects into confessions or incriminating statements. It's scary sometimes to think about some of the things police officers can get away with just by virtue of being a cop. All I can say to you is, if you ever find yourself in a predicament with law enforcement, and I've said this before and I'll say it again, just remain silent 
and get your attorney quickly. Please get an attorney. Thank you so much for joining me for this 24th episode of California Dreaming. As you know, California Dreaming has found a home on the Orbital Jigsaw Network. There, you can find me, along with an eclectic group of podcasts from a variety of genres, including The Concession Stand, Super Nerds UK, Busted Wide Open, The Dirty Bits Podcast, Historium, Is This Adulting, and Film Roast. You can find all of us and stream all of our available episodes at www.orbitaljigsaw.com. Also on the Orbital Jigsaw Network page, you can find the link to our merchandise store. I've seen some of you out there post pictures of your recent purchases of California Dreaming merchandise on social media, and I can't thank you enough for helping to support and represent the show. It blows my mind to think about those of you out there wearing your t-shirts and carrying those tote bags. I really do have the best listeners out there, and I know California Dreaming isn't for everyone, but if you're listening to this, you guys get it, and you get me, and I am so happy you're here with me each week. And as for Patreon, what can I say? I am so incredibly grateful for each and every one of you who has gone above and beyond your support for me in the show. Each week, little by little, one or two patrons trickle in, pledging support for California Dreaming. And I'm doing everything I can to make sure I keep bringing you exclusive content without sacrificing the regular weekly show that isn't behind the paywall. Every Patreon episode is available to everyone at all levels. I've decided that even if you're going to pledge $1, $2, or $5, that I want all of you to be able to hear the shows, and I don't want anyone who's pledged support to not have access to that. I can't offer different levels of perks for those who pledge at higher tiers, and I know some pledge just to pledge without expectation of rewards, which in and of itself seems unfair, and I want to send you show perks anyway. But everyone, everyone who pledges gets to listen to the content, whether you pledge $1 or $10. I can't bring myself to deny access to anyone. And if you are at the $5 or $10 or even higher levels, we can most certainly talk about exclusive perks for you guys. Like maybe I can send you a mug or maybe you can pick a case. Or maybe you can help me work on a particular case, maybe even record a segment for me. I want you to in some way be a part of the show, in any way that you think you're able to. I'm really wanting to branch out and do more outside of just me talking for an hour about crime. Although I do like doing that. I do have some promos from a couple of podcasts that I think you might be interested in checking out. The first is from the Brohio podcast, and the second is from Nature versus Narcissism. Take a listen. I am Nick, 
And I am Rob, and we are the Brohio Podcast. We cover all the unknown and much more. Aliens, true crime, famous murders, monsters, paranormal, and everything that goes bump in the night. We keep it funny, slightly trashy, and sometimes we like to talk about crapping our... Nick, 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 we are trying to make a good impression here. Right, right. You can find us on all your favorite podcast apps. We drop new episodes every Monday. We are a member of the Bomb Pod Media Network. We'd love to talk to you on Instagram and Twitter, at Brohio Podcast. And the bros of Brohio do appreciate you listening. We will see you on the dark side. Hey everyone, I'm Heather. Hey guys, I'm Kim. And we are two sisters from Cincinnati, Ohio, who host a new true crime podcast called Nature Versus Narcissism. I have always been fascinated by true crime and the criminal mind, so I wanted to delve deeper into infamous cases as well as the lesser known to see if we can determine what made these criminals commit these vile acts. Was it nature? Was it nurture? Or was it just plain old narcissism? Find us on Facebook, Stitcher, Instagram, Twitter, and Apple Podcasts. Rate and review, please. And don't forget to subscribe. Bye. Also, I have a long list of Twitter and Facebook shoutouts to give this week. So, bear with me as I get through this list. Nature of the Beast, Kimmy, The Featherstone, Bitching About Movies, Ruckus Sessions Podcast, 36 Times Podcast, Scarewaves Podcast, Sightseeing Shoes, Truest of Crimes, The Cleaning of John Doe, High Expectations Podcast, Tracy Faw, Justin of the Mysterious Circumstances Podcast, Brothers Commonplace, Cutter 1888 Cardboard Castles True Crime Storytime Podcast Gracie B The True Crime Files Getting Off Podcast The More Gooder Than Podcast Murderish Podcast Cold Case Murder Podcast Flix X-Raid Okay, this one is Latin, so bear with me. Occulte Veritatis Podcast. The Extraordinary Stories Podcast. Martinis and the Macabre. Nicole Etheral. Maria. Mary. Terrence. The Couch Potato Files. Edme Melendez. The Pod Stuff Podcast. True Crime Sweden. Wiki Leads on Weed Podcast, Samantha E, Mysteries and Urban Legends Podcast, Chris M, Sequoia E, Christmas Abbey, BS Pod PHX, We're All Mad Here, Greg H, Lustmordia Podcast, Luke 211, The Man Brain Podcast, Left Behind Podcast, The Dark Divide Podcast, Charles, The Moms and Murder Podcast, The Varmints Podcast, Becky S., The Heebie Jeebies Babe Podcast, Lana C., Elizabeth C., Mary H., Jennifer S., Hannah O., My Pod Sister of the Film Roast Podcast, Veronica H., Mar W, Belky G, 
Karen M, Jen L, Tilly T, Kelly P, Natalie Jane, Jessica L, Melissa S, Shelly M, Aliyah N, Jan S, Randy M, Jen O, Megan M, Sarah S, Tina A, Nancy S, Kate W, Kelly M, Casey Samantha of the True Crime Storytime podcast, Stephanie L, Jessica Y of the Asian Madness podcast, Gunnar Nilsson, Leigh D, and Rosemary G. I think I got all of you, and if I missed you, don't worry, I will post again for you to quote, retweet, gif, comment, like, whatever, on Twitter and Facebook, maybe on Instagram too, and I promise I will get all of you in. Thank you again for listening, and until next time, sweet dreams.